Dog Talk and Kitties too. I'm Tracy Hotchner, best friend to your best friends, your dogs and cats. Every week I invite pet experts and authors to expand our understanding of the four-legged members of our families. To hear other episodes of this show and all the delightfully informative Pet Talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and pet experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. And I do hope to see you at my dog film festival and pooch party October 2nd and 3rd in New York City. Learn more at DogFilmFestival.com. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Oruva, a pet food company that makes food for cats and dogs in their family's human food facility, following the exact same guidelines for ingredients and handling. Waruva's unusual name comes from the owner's three rescued cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, and their desire to feed them food that's good enough for people to eat. All varieties of canned Waruva, pouches of cats in the kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brands, are made to specifications for people food, so your four-legged family members will eat as well as you do. Folks, I have some more news for you today about the canine flu. Those of us that thought it was only in Illinois need to know it is actually now in the state of New York. And we have Dr. Arce from the AVMA who's going to talk to us about the canine flu, the spread, what sort of danger you may or may not be in and how to protect yourselves. And then I have Mervyn from Spot Platinum who's going to talk about allergies at this time of the year, how to test your dog for them and what you can do about it, both to reduce the amount of allergen that they're exposed to and also maybe you might want to go on the kind of nasal oral spray that my Maisie's on that's been a godsend. And humorous Meryl Marco will be here. She created the uh, the stupid dog tricks, the stupid pet tricks for the David Letterman show years ago. She has a couple of amazing films that are going to be in the Dog Film Festival, and she's going to read from her hilarious book, What, what the Dogs Taught Me. Dr. Jose Arce, is a very renowned gentleman, a veterinarian in Puerto Rico who's very prominent and important in the Puerto Rican veterinary community, and he's now part of the leadership conference of the whole AVMA. Dr. Arce, thanks for taking time from what I'm sure is a crazy busy schedule with this canine flu. Do Are people panicking, sir? Do you find that there's a great deal of anxiety, or is it more the veterinarians who are worried and are pet owners not as as quite as worried as the vets? I think there's a little bit of both. I, I think initially when there was a big outbreak in Chicago about a month ago, uh, there was a lot of panic because there was not much information out there. But I think slowly we have been getting the information out there on how to prevent it and, and how to uh, report it and, and see the, the signs that, that, that can cause this virus. It puts it puts the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, in a kind of awkward position because this is not really the job of the AVMA to alert pet owners or even, I wouldn't think, to alert veterinarians. Isn't that more to do with the Centers for Disease Control or other kind of governmental agencies? Or is this part of what the AVMA is supposed to do? This is part of what we do. Uh, we do work jointly with the, with the CDC and with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and in different matters. And since we, we are the biggest association, we have over 85,000 veterinarians that are part of the AVMA. Uh, we're a great uh, informative uh, uh, source for veterinarians and, and it was, I mean, indirectly for clients. 
Right, right. Of course, because it's it's kind of a chain a chain of information. I guess one of the things that that came out when I did a show on the flu with Dr. Donna Spector, who's a board certified internist in Chicago, was that most of the veterinarians there didn't have any any staff or any time or even the 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 knowledge of exactly how to tell who what was going on. So a lot wasn't being reported. How much do you feel is going unreported now, even with the 13 states that you've now identified as having the flu? Do you wonder and worry how many places the veterinarian simply does not have enough staff or time to sit on the phone and dial numbers and wait on hold and report information? Isn't that kind of a problem? It is, and, and part of the reason is because this is a new virus that has developed. We, we've had another type of canine influenza in the United States in 2004. Right. This new, this new strain just started about a month and a half ago, and we don't have the vaccine for it that can help, you know, control the disease. Uh, at first, we didn't have tests to, to diagnose it, and basically we would diagnose the disease based on clinical signs. But now... Uh, we have developed some tests that, that can be sent to several places, including a place in, in Cornell, uh, in New York, where you're at, uh, where this can, can be diagnosed rapidly. So, so we're moving and, and evolving day to day, and hopefully, you know, we can say in a few months we'll develop a vaccine for this too. Which which would be really an incredible breakthrough. I had one of the scientists on from IDEX that actually created that test within, I think, two weeks or days. or It was something extraordinary. As soon as this flu became potentially an epidemic, they were brilliantly working around the clock, both at IDEX and at Cornell, to develop the test. Now, is this test readily available across the country, or does a veterinarian have to, first of all, know there is a test and then order it? And is that a problem to, to actually get the test that tells you, oh, does your dog just have the sniffles? Although I don't know how many dogs really just get the old sniffles. I've actually never had a dog that got the sniffles. Or is this the, the full-blown horrible new flu that could be fatal if you're young or you're old? Does everyone have this test now in their in their clinic or is that pretty unrealistic? No, it, this is something we, we have to send away. And it, and it takes a couple of days for us to get the test back. Uh, we send it to different places, such as Cornell, and uh, we can uh, get test uh, results probably in two or three days. We usually send it, you know, via FedEx or UPS or some fast uh, mailing system so we can get the results as quickly as possible. So sometimes it's a matter of, of you know, at least two days before we get uh, diagnosis. Which makes, doesn't that make it a little bit tricky? Sorry to interrupt, but I mean, now you have a dog that has these upper respiratory symptoms, which is mostly what the symptoms are, right? And maybe some lethargy. So you don't know, is this the horrible flu? Does this dog have to be in isolation? I mean, it's very contagious, right? So you first the vet has to test and then everyone in the in the clinic needs to don the right apparel. And we aren't really set up for that, just like we weren't set up in the human world, even for Ebola. It, I imagine that poses some problem. Correct. And, and that's kind of the challenge that we're facing right now. And, you know, informing veterinarians and informing the clients uh, on when they start seeing all these clinical signs, basically, like you mentioned, the most common clinical sign is a, it's a persistent cough. Other dogs might start developing a more severe nasal secretion uh, or, or even dogs that start having, you know, lethargy or inhabitants. But at first, we have to basically, you know, teach the public how to recognize it, isolate this, this affected pet, and it might be another disease. There are similar diseases such as the commonly known kennel cough that at first appears just like the, the canine influenza virus. So, yeah, 
right now it's, it's it's hard because we don't have a really available test that we can have in our hospitals right away and, and diagnose it within minutes. So we do have to to isolate the, the suspected cases, especially if you're in the in the 13 states that were where you have been cases. Uh, you know that that is a responsibility. I wouldn't take the dogs to to parks and take it to 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 a boarding facility or to a dog show. And don't take it to your vet, right? I mean, do not bring it to your your vet clinic unless they're set up with a place to isolate that dog. I mean, I understand that in that in the Chicago area, the vets were saying, if you have these symptoms, come in, but don't come in. Stay out in your car or in a taxi, and we'll come out to you, right? Because otherwise, the dog is going to track in this flu, and every animal that then is in the clinic has been exposed to it potentially. Yeah, and and if you if the clinic is not set up for that, that could perfectly happen. Uh, some clinics are set up with isolation units because they've faced other outbreaks in the past, uh, whether it's parvovirus or, right. or even uh, something like kennel club, where you can separate those those dogs in a place where they will never be in contact with healthy dogs. But not every clinic has those facilities. Some clinics are very small hospitals, where basically they're they're in day clinics where they don't hospitalize animals. So yeah. That, that would definitely be a concern. Uh, and, and speak to your veterinarians or their staff before yes. you, you come in. That, that, that's the key. And many times if your dog's healthy, uh, this, this will subside within 10 days. Uh, like you said before, very young dogs or very old dogs that whose immune systems are compromised will, could develop the more severe form of the disease. And, and then those cases might have to go to a hospital that has an isolation unit and be hospitalized with IV fluids, IV uh, antibiotics or even an IV and anti-inflammatory drugs to decrease the inflammation in the respiratory tract. Wow. Another reason for pet insurance, friends, because this is like the totally unexpected. Do a lot of the specialty um, specialty hospitals like Animal Specialty Center in Yonkers or, or the, the ER place in Riverhead, do, do most of them have an isolation unit as part of being an, an emergency or 24-hour or specialty hospital or not necessarily? I don't know exactly about those places, but most of those uh, specialty places or the larger hospitals right. do. Right, they do. Uh, because they're, they're, they're accustomed to seeing these emergencies and, and, and some of these parvo cases that definitely don't need to be uh, near the, the healthy pet population. All right, so I'm going to read off the 13 states, and I know that we're gonna, I'm going to ask you some questions about New York because – we're all selfish and we're like, oh, okay, Alabama, California, Georgia, Illinois, we know about, Indiana, Iowa, Texas, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, and Wisconsin. So since we're all kind of selfish by nature, we're like, well, I don't live in Wisconsin, but hang on, you know, this station originates in New York. If it's in Port Jefferson, New York, does that make the whole state somehow more at risk? If it's New York City, of course, that's, I would think, worse. Do you do you identify which part of the state, and is that relevant or not really? It is relevant, and, and part of what the CDC and, and the, the local uh, state uh, uh, health department and in some cases the agriculture department, depending on the state, uh, will we'll, we'll need to have that data. And, and inform the veterinarians in that area that, that, that they, they have seen cases and, and can help control the disease because the information, you know, at, those, at the local level is the key. Uh, these cases probably came from somebody traveling from, yes. from one of the other states. Yep. And it, it, it can happen just, just like, a, like in a, imagine if a dog with, with, with a canine influenza sign shows up to, to the Westminster show in, in the, the, the famous one. 
I mean, imagine how many dogs could get infected. So it would be horrible. Just, yeah, exactly. And 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 that, that's the key, you know, controlling it at the local level so it doesn't spread throughout the nation. Right now, we've we've seen it in 13 cases. I mean, 13 states. Right. But luckily, most of them have been in Illinois. The, the other states have only had two or three isolated cases, and probably from pets traveling to to Illinois or or the neighboring states. And I would imagine that a lot of the, the the public relations information press releases that the AVMA has done have been really helpful because in Chicago, by the time everyone heard about it, they'd already been to doggy daycare and to the dog park and all over the place. And it was like, you know, the disease was out of the bag. Whereas by telling people about these other states, people need to be on alert. And if you cannot go to your agility class or not go to your agility competition and you're in those states or you need to travel between states, maybe you could change your plans for the moment. I mean, I think it doesn't mean you have to be in seclusion and wrap your dog in plastic wrap, but it does mean to be much more cautious. There, There's a couple of fenced-in dog parks like in East Hampton. There might be one in – there's one in uh, further west of – Southampton, should people even on the east end of Long Island avoid a gathering place like a dog park? Because you, a lot of these dogs are traveling dogs. They're with their humans on cars, planes, what have you, all over the place. It, would it be best to avoid it at a time like this? Uh, that's a great question. And, and I guess it's, it's something that everybody needs to analyze. Uh, you would definitely lessen the, the, the spread of the disease by doing this and the probability of your healthy dog getting it. Uh, but we, we try to focus this on, on the dogs that are showing clinical signs and tell those owners to not go to parks, to not board dogs, to not do- go to dog shows, uh, or, or even go to the local store that sometimes permits you to take your dog. Yes. And so you can buy dog food. So keep the dog at home. Uh, talk to your veterinarian about how, how to control the disease. And a lot of this has to do with with basic uh, cleaning of the premises, of the dog balls, of the leashes, uh, something that everybody can do at their home and, and, and prevent that. If, you, if your dog is not showing any clinical signs, you could go to those parks, but there might be the potential of exposure from other dogs. So it's hard for me to tell everybody right. not to go to a, to a park, but you know, you, if you don't go, you, you, you will lessen the probability of you getting this. I mean, your dog getting disease. I mean, we have to think back there, you know, not so many years ago, there were no dog parks. People walked their dogs either on a leash or somewhere else off a leash that wasn't fenced in with an, a lot of accumulated dog urine and feces and saliva. Uh, whether the saliva came off their lips or onto a tennis ball. It just seems to me that the smarter thing to do is be cautious because we can all and our dogs can live without a dog park. I mean, in the city or in cities in general, people rely on that dog park as a place to then stand and drink their coffee and chat with friends and feel like their dogs are getting, quote unquote, exercise. But there's a lot of things that can go wrong in a dog park anyway. I've talked about it over the years on this show. I think now would be a time to like work on some leash work with your dogs. You don't have to enclose them in an incubator. Because I think, Dr. Arce, that you would agree that, like you said, if they're not there, they're not going to get the disease. On the other hand, these dogs who've traveled, could it, could it be something as benign as stopping at a gas station and let your dog out for a pee and the dog somehow you know, walks on ground that another infected dog has peed on and then maybe licks his or her paws? Is it only oh. saliva or nasal discharge or also urine and, and feces? No, it's it's the what we call aerophilized respiratory secretion. So yeah, it's saliva and nasal secretions, basically. But but like you said, I mean, 
it's very easy to, to transmit from one dog to the, to the other. Sometimes it doesn't even take a dog. We can even transmit this. I, if, if one of our dogs sneezes and it, and it goes into our clothing or, or we step on, on it and, and, and get it on our shoes, wow. we can go to our house and transmit it to a healthy dog. So it, it's very hard to, to control it completely. So that's why we have to, when we see these clinical signs, uh, you know, make sure we, we, we begin the basic sanitation uh, protocols that I mentioned before, as cleaning the, the leash, I mean, the leash, yeah, the leashes and the balls. And what about their paws? I mean, I guess their paws as well. Of course, the other problem, as I understand it, is this is one of those many viral type diseases where you're incubating it. You have it before you're symptomatic. So you're carrying it to others and to yourself before you actually show the symptoms. So it's sort of like once you've shown the symptoms, you're already well down the path of having this illness, right? Correct. You you could have the illness and, and be incubating it but you don't become infectious to other dogs until you start have, having this. I see. Okay. So, yeah, your dog could have it, and, and sometimes they, if, they, if they have a very strong immune system, they, they might not even show any clinical signs and, and just, you know, control it on their own. Uh, other dogs are going to show the clinical signs. Now, where is a good place to send people if they want to have more information or they want to stay up to date on things? Because there is a little confusion. Do you go to the Cornell website? Do you go to the American Veterinary Medical Association, which is avma.org? Or do you go to the CDC? Where, where do you imagine is the most up-to-date, useful information that doesn't cause panic but gives people useful advice? I think that the website of the American Veterinary Medical Association is very good, and, and it has a lot of information on canine influenza, whether it's the, the basic, you know, common questions that people have, a very, a very basic uh, understanding and explanation of the virus or who's at risk, how to spread, the signs of illnesses, how to protect your dog. So I would encourage people to go to the AVMA uh, website, avma.org, and, and if they want to go to the CDC from there, there's links that you can oh, that's go perfect. from there and, and go to the CDC. We, this is a joint effort. We, we want to uh, inform the public uh, with all the sources possible. So, but but I think the, the website of the AVMA is, is very good and, and and hard to I mean easy to understand. Uh, definitely, and and I want to say that you do a great job for the AVMA. I know that you're a, a member of the House of Delegates and positions of of authority and thoughtfulness and and leadership that are really important in an organization that has eighty five thousand members and probably more all the time as more more people come out of veterinary college. So thank you for the time that you give both to the organization and the time you're giving us so that we can understand that there is a risk and there are things we can do to minimize it. And uh, as information comes out, avma.org is the place to go. Thank you so much, Dr. Jose Arce. And uh, let's hope that we just keep it at 13, unlucky 13. But of course, in Italy, 13 is the lucky number. How about in Puerto Rico? Is 13 lucky or unlucky? In Puerto Rico, actually, the building where I live doesn't have a 13th floor, so I guess we follow the U.S. You follow the U.S., yeah. (laughs) In Italy, number seven is very unlucky, and 13 is so lucky you could wear it on a charm on your bracelet. So go go figure. Let's hope we keep it at lucky or unlucky 13, whichever it is. Thank you so much for all you do for the animals, and uh, I hope we don't have to talk to you about this again soon, but I would love to have you back sometime to talk about Puerto Rico and the strides that are being made there in terms of shelters and the homeless dogs and dead dog beach. I'd love to have somebody of your stature tell us what is the the problem there and, and how it's being solved. But that is for another time. Thank you so much, Dr. Arce.
Thank you, Tracy, for having us, and thank you to everybody, and, and make sure you, you keep it informed. This is the key. Absolutely. Prevention. That's right. Knowledge is power. Thank you so much, sir. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. I'll be right back after this quick word with Mervin and allergies, important for all of us. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado, who has created many different low-dust litters for the health of all members of the family, cats or people with asthma and allergies. Precious Cat also makes litter for the special needs of many cats, from kitten-attract litter that helps youngsters develop good habits, to cat-attract litter that helps those with out-of-litter box issues get back in the box. Precious Cat's Touch of the Outdoors litter provides environmental enrichment bringing to indoor cats the natural scent of the outdoors from field grasses grown in their own fields. I am back with Mervyn Levin, who was on the show, I want to think, a year ago, talking about spot platinum, which is an allergy test, which has come in incredibly life-savingly handy for me. And I thought this being the time of year when so many pollens are happening, so many new things are growing, and so many dogs are itching, scratching, and licking. It would be great to get Mervyn back. Mervyn, welcome back to the show. You're in Arizona, so you don't have the kind of problems we have in New England or the Northeast of, of a lot of allergies to pollens, right? You're kind of more of a desert? You know, Tracy, I wish that were the case. And 25 years ago, uh, asthma patients were sent out to Arizona to come and get away from asthma. Yes, that's right. Unfortunately, they all brought their plants and favorite flowering trees, et cetera, with them. So we are actually one of the allergy capitals of the country right now, believe it or not. Isn't that ironic? Oh, my God. Yeah, the good old days when you could go someplace that was clean of all the things that are so beautiful and cause so much distress. As far yeah, as do- we have, we are having one of our worst allergy seasons ever right now. I've, and if we on the on the East Coast had such a long, hot, dry spell that whatever was put down into the, onto the surfaces of things never had a chance to really get washed away. So, I right. I developed allergies later in life, and I don't know with dogs, do they develop allergies from? constantly being assaulted, if you will, by the thing that they're potentially allergic to? Do they get worse as they get older? Or if you have an allergic dog, are you going to see it pretty young? Well, yes. I mean, none of us are born with allergies per se. What we do have is an immune system that has a tendency to develop allergies. In other words, it's an immune system which mistakenly identifies an allergen, be it a pollen grain or an insect or house dust or whatever the case may be, and it mistakenly identifies that as though it were a foreign body, just like a bacteria or a virus, and goes to work on combating that. So this overzealous immune system makes this mistaken identification and upon repeat exposure we get this happening enough times where the uh, eventually the allergy symptoms are triggered so if you look at a bee sting I used to be in the ambulance in East Hampton which I mentioned from time to time it was an amazing eight years of my life you can have I'm asking you this because you're an allergy specialist if you get stung, maybe even your dog, I don't know, but if you or your child gets stung by a bee and you have a pretty strong allergic reaction, maybe not to the point where you call the ambulance because that's really scary right. when your throat closes up and your num- lips get numb and your tongue gets thick, but you just get a lot of itching and a huge amount of swelling at the spot. Is it true that subsequent bee stings will get worse each time or is that a myth? No, that is absolutely true. Um, Our body has um, what we call memory B cells. These are the precursors of the antibodies that are produced. And these memory cells will recognize that bee sting from its previous uh, 
bad exposure, so to speak, right. and will go to work immediately on the immune system, except it will produce more antibody than it did the first time around and therefore a more severe reaction. So that is absolutely true. And the same holds to people, for example, that have peanut allergies yes. and they say, okay, I haven't had a peanut for 20 years uh, and I've had no symptoms, let me have a peanut, and all of a sudden one peanut and they have a major anaphylactic no reaction. No kidding. That is simply because of those memory B cells, yes. So this, so this we see in our dogs as well. I went to a, a canine camp a few years ago, and there was someone there with a mini schnauzer that was on allergy shots. And I said, well, what is the dog getting shots for? And she said he's allergic to grass. And I really thought, Mervyn, that she was out of her mind. I said, how could... I mean, I didn't say to her, gee, you're out of your mind. I thought, oh, my God, this is the dopiest thing I've ever heard. How could a dog that has lived for, you know, in some form or other for thousands of years has to walk on grass all the time? How could you be allergic to something as sort of common as grass, as the saying goes? But it turns out it's true. So some of us don't realize our dogs could be allergic to grass. Our dogs are allergic to the exact same things as we are and in and about the same proportion. So if Bermuda grass is a potent allergen in your area, then you are and your dog are just as susceptible to that Bermuda grass, ragweed, rye, whatever it may I'll be. I'll be darned. Uh, and mine's certainly gotten worse over time. I've gotten allergy shots for years. I got them in Southampton for 12 years. I get them now in Vermont. You're supposed to eventually go to just every two weeks or once a month. I go every week and also take an antihistamine by mouth. But I, I, so it's sort of surprising to me, God, how much worse would it be if I didn't have this on board? I do have an allergic dog. When I got Maisie, she was nine months old and had this, that, and the other issue. And I did the spot platinum allergy test right away, which is something that we talked about before, but I think really worth telling people about again, because I don't think people know that there's a blood test for allergies. There was a time when it was believed, or maybe some, maybe some dermatologists still believe it because it's their business, that you had to do a skin test in a dog like you do in people for it to be valid. But the blood test for environmental allergies, is it considered as useful or as accurate? You know what? Yes, it is. And it, it really has been since its inception when we first started this back in 1987. Um, Initially, though, it was met with skepticism right. from the dermatology community, especially well, because it was something new, and it was seen as a potential threat, which it really wasn't, uh, because there's so much more to dermatology that dermatologists can and ought to be doing than yes, just worrying absolutely. about allergies doing allergy testing. And whereas a dermatologist will spend an hour and a half or two hours doing an allergy test, this is something that the veterinarian draws blood, takes three, four minutes, puts it in an envelope, and sends it to us. The results at the end of the day are going to be very, very comparable. Uh, now, there are a few elements of caution, and you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say that everything that itches is not allergy. Right. So we do caution our veterinarians to do an extensive workup before just making the assumption that because the dog has hot spots, always licking its paws or has, is scratching, has alopecia, whatever the case may be, that it's specific, that it's definitely allergy. There so what are the other things? I mean, we, we know flea bite, and, and all it takes is one bite of a flea, and it's the saliva that the dogs have the reaction right. to, right? So, okay, fleas, even if you say, I'm clean, my dog's clean, you take them to the beach where there's sand fleas, or to someone's right. house or the dog park, and they get one.
on flea bite, but what else can what what else can trigger these kinds of allergic reactions? Well, um, one of the first and, and primary things is is the endocrine system. Uh, thyroid is probably right. one of the most common issues, right. whether it's hypo or hypothyroidism. Um, uh, cortisol is another issue. Um, is that like Cushing's hypo- disease? Exactly, exactly. And that, that will cause skin-related problems. Now, I also, again, it's probably worth pointing out at this stage that a lot of people are surprised to hear that allergies in, you know, I often people say to me, oh, you're in the allergy business. My dog sneezes all the time. And that's really not a common symptom uh, for that's dogs. That's right. It's that's more common right. in cats. So in dogs, they typically manifest dermatologically. They're either going to get hot spots, they're going to have alopecia, lose their hair, they're going to have pododermatitis, which is where they're chewing their feet, otitis, or, uh, ear infections, eye, eye issues, um, you know, rubbing their, their, their muzzle. Right. Uh, those are the types of things we'll see with allergy, but unfortunately, those are also symptoms we see with some of the things that I've mentioned. So those things really need to be ruled out before we even do allergy testing. That's, that's and, and a really as good an example, point. Right. And as an example, a dog that, is, that has a lot of fleas on it, um, you know, it may have allergies and we may test it and we may treat it. But unless the owner accepts that the dog does have fleas and that it's not a negative on them that their dog has fleas right. and that they're willing to do the right necessary steps, um, frankly, they're wasting their time because if, if the dog is still going to be scratching. But right. stretching from the freeze, freeze and not from the allergies. I think it's, I'm talking to Mervyn Levin in, in Arizona with the Spot Platinum Company um, and, and a lifetime studying allergies in, in dogs and allergic reactions and, and finding solutions to it. And I, and I look at myself before I did the, the test. And I had Maisie. Be, I don't know if everybody is as bothered by itching and scratching as I am, but if it's this, it drives me crazy. It makes me feel itchy and scratchy. But imagine how miserable for the dog that they're walking along and they stop and they have to scratch their neck and they have to bite their flank. And I had her on nine Benadryl a day because in dogs, Benadryl works differently. Antihistamines do. So what would be one for a person is three or four times for a dog. And other things as well, some prednisone. And I knew that that was ridiculous because that's only dealing with a symptom. And who wants to give their dog nine Benadryl? My neighbor with a chocolate lab, his dog had alopecia. The hair was falling out. All the feathering on the tail was gone. The dog was biting and itching and scratching. He went to a dermatologist, uh, you know, spent hundreds of dollars. He, too, wound up on the massive amounts of Benadryl and some steroids. And the dog didn't look well, didn't feel well. And I said, you just need to get an allergy test because if the test – and the test – is by region, right? So you, you, the vet, have to tell your company this dog lives in such and such a region, and then you specifically test for the kinds of plants and trees in that region. Otherwise, there's too many exactly. millions to choose from. Well, exactly. We, ha- we have 12 regions across the United States, so it's very, very geographically. We have five regions across Canada and then another 45 regions internationally. So each region is very, very different in the number of allergens. And, and that brings to mind another important thing that people often don't realize. They may get a result back and say, okay, the, your dog is allergic to olive tree, and they say, but there's no olive trees anywhere near our neighborhood. Right. Allergens will travel hundreds of miles. Oh. So in putting our screens together, we do take that into account. So in Arizona, for example, two hours north of us, we have Flagstaff, which is at a 7,000 feet elevation, totally different environment, but we are being affected by the allergens that are two hours north of us. Either windborne uh, or maybe a bird brings brings it well, on there. Uh, the, 
that's another good point because really the allergens that we're talking about are the aeroallergens, the ones that are windborne. Insect pollinated plants are not typically the allergens that uh, that are affecting our animals. Oh. So anything that's a, a colorful flowering plant, that that pollen grain is surrounded by a, a fairly solid lipid layer. So it's too heavy and would fall to the ground and the chances of the dog inhaling oh, that are minimal. So uh, really, insect pollinated plants are not allergens. Uh, they may, we may be sensitive to them. In fact, you get people who say, oh, I'm allergic to roses. It's, it's the aroma and it's a sensitivity, but it's not an actual allergic reaction because it's an insect pollinated rather than a windborne. So there isn't something for the person to actually breathe in unless they take a really big snort of the, of the rose to get the full aroma of it. Well, I guess really the, the point is that people have dogs with these itchy, scratchy, and a lot of it's paw licking, lick, lick, lick. So either their dog's scratching and jingling their, their tags or they're licking. I, I personally, it drives me berserk, and that's just selfish. Unselfishly, I should not want the dog to be in that much itchy condition. A lot of people have been told, and I don't know where they get this idea, but it's, it just passes around, my dog's allergic to chicken. I have no idea what gives them this idea. So then they go to all this trouble to get a non-chicken-based dog food, or they make their own, but the dog's still licking and scratching. And maybe it goes away for a while because whatever the thing is, that whatever the plant or tree is that they're allergic to has gone through its cycle. But I guess one of the reasons that I, uh, some people may not get tested and I didn't was I thought, ah, I don't know if I want to give shots myself because I get shots right. myself, no biggie. But I wasn't way comfortable with giving them and then you came out with this under the tongue, uh, an oral spray that, that works the same way. And Maisie gets a squirt, three little squirts under her tongue in the morning, 10 minutes before her breakfast. And it's really extraordinary. I know it's supposed to take months to work. In the case of me with allergy shots, they say to people it could take years for it to work. In my case, it has taken years to even help a little. But she got relief so quickly. Is it is it possible it's because I jumped on it and did something about it before the allergic reaction really ramped up? Well, here's what probably will happen in your case and in Maisie's situation, having had looked at the results that we sent out to you. Uh, firstly, um, allergies are a threshold. So uh, we could be allergic to 10 things, and if we remove seven from the environment, that's enough to bring us below the threshold. The problem is we don't know what that threshold is as it varies from patient to patient. So the more things we can eliminate and right. or treat to, the better chances. So in Maisie's case, you changed the diet. Because she was very allergic to peas. I just I didn't mention right. that, but it was a strange thing, but a lot of the high-end foods, in order to avoid grains, and especially corn, they use peas, which are a fabulous food, but that you would find them in some foods you have whole peas ground peas pea flour pea fiber so i knew that that must be you know adding fuel to the fire so i got her off that food and knowing that that wasn't going to be the whole picture but that threshold you talked about i think people might have ever heard the phrase i have it in the dog bible the rain barrel effect it's like a rain barrel exactly. that fills up with water. And if all the things that the dog is allergic to, if you keep filling the barrel, it'll tip over the top and pour out over the top, and that's the allergic reaction. So you want exactly. to get And it. the problem is we don't know which allergen is going to be that one oh, that's I going see. to cause the right. final overflow. So in, in, that, in your case, you eliminated the foods, in this case the peas, and that brought the threshold down below a certain point, but obviously not enough to ele completely eliminate the symptoms. Now, some people are lucky enough, 
and they can do that without immunotherapy. Immunotherapy is given in one of two ways, either the injectable, which has the, been the standard for many, many years, uh, whereby you're, you're giving a subcutaneous injection, uh, and initially that's daily, then weekly, and ultimately monthly. Uh, some people don't like doing that. Some dogs are averse to it, and some people, are frankly, are scared to inject yes. their dogs because their dogs get uh, get antsy when they see the yes. the, the needle. Uh, so the alternative, and this is relatively new, well, I'm going to say relatively new, it's a, it's a couple of years old, uh, is the sublingual immunotherapy. And as you said, these are basically just drops or spray which goes under the tongue. It's essentially the same stuff that goes into the injection. Oh, I see. Uh, except that it's taken into the body via a different mechanism. The injection is given subcutaneously and allows the immune system to gradually build an, a response to produce uh, immunoglobulins or IgG to uh, counter the reaction. In the case of the sublingual, the same thing is happening. The advantage is the absorption is pretty fast. Um, and, and IgA, which is prevalent in the mouth, plays a role in that. But also, um, we don't have the key factor of, of what causes allergies, and that's mast cells, because it's the degranulation of these mast cells which causes the reaction. And there are no mast cells in the oral cavity. So the chances of having an adverse reaction oh, that's to treatment are much, much less, if at all, and therefore the uh, response time is usually a lot quicker. So typically where we say with, with, with injectable hypersensitization, with, sub, with uh, uh, the subcutaneous injections, those uh, we say three to five, six months, give or take, and it could take as long as eight or nine months. In the case of the sublingual, we can easily take a month or two off that. And depending on how close your, your dog is to the threshold, the faster I it will see. happen. So this is a good reason to go to your vet. There's always a good reason to go to your vet. It's always good to have your heart checked and your ears checked and your eyes checked and look in the oral cavity anyway. Mervyn, thanks so much. I'm sorry that Arizona is now full of allergies too, but I guess for business, <laughs> for business it's not the worst thing ever. This... Well, it's one of those things that I selfishly don't complain about. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us and thanks so much for, for doing that test for Maisie. Honestly, it's, now she just turned two and I know that I have a dog where I can manage these things for life and not have them manage me. Have a Great rest great, of the day. Donna, thanks. Thank good you talking so to you again. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Bye. I'll be right back in a minute with Meryl Marco, who is such a funny filmmaker and writer. We'll be right back. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega 3 fish oil products which provide the same premium quality omega 3 fish oils for people and their pets. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega 3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in their oils, while also offering vegetarian and vegan versions of the all-important omega-3 fatty acids. Dog Talk is also brought to you by the Animal Specialty Center in Yonkers, New York, where a staff of specialized veterinarians and their sophisticated equipment offer expanded options in diagnostics and treatment. If your pet has a condition that is not resolving with your own vet's care or is beyond her level of expertise, you might consider a consultation at the Animal Specialty Center. I am back with Meryl Marco, who I met. Well, I haven't actually met her. I would totally love to meet her and her dogs, but I met her because... 
I found some of her films. Some of you might have found something so hilarious and cool on the internet called Conversations with My Dogs, or better yet, what was sent to me by a friend who knows about the Dog Film Festival was Firing My Dogs, which was to die for. She's made a lot of really cool videos with her dogs. I mean, super funny, but the dogs are talking and the dogs are good little actors. Turns out she's written tons of very funny books. She's a filmmaker. She's a writer. She created Stupid Pet Tricks on The David Letterman Show. Meryl, it's so cool to have you on Dog Talk, but the world should know more about you. I wish I could. I hope I can do something about that. You're just like this little gem of hilarious dog love. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. What dogs are living in your life now? I have two that I've had just about exactly a year. I got them both at this one dog rescue. I have Wally and Rosie. They're both kind of German Shepherd mixes. And did you pick them at the same time? No, I got Wally at the the first, um, and then I let Wally adopt Rosie. Uh, Wally was very easy to adopt. We went in looking for... I didn't want a purebred because I've had so much bad luck with them. Also, I always get rescues, but but I mean, I purebreds. So many of them have inbred diseases that right. you know you've got sort of the luck of the draw yes. with a mutt. So I always go for mutts. And I was actually at the German Shepherd rescue looking for what they had in the way of mutts. And this guy came out, Wally, he just came out hugging. And so it was very easy to adopt him. We went, all right, you passed the audition. He was just got on us and started hugging. Some of your essays in, in your book, which unfortunately, I guess it's out of print, but you can find it on Amazon. As you point out to me, it's one penny, which is horrifying for authors. I mean, what which, the dogs... Wait, which book is out of print? What the dogs have taught me and other... No, 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 oh, it's not. There was a new oh, edition of it a oh, couple years ago. I was just ago. being cheap. Okay. So you could buy it full price, guys, which you should do. Oh, cheap. And it has a lot of updated material in it that's got oh. other stuff that you didn't think. You saw an old version of it. Oh, they re- reissued it. Oh, good. Well, that means that more people were finding it. What the dogs have taught me and other amazing things I've learned. And a lot of the essays are drop-dead funny about dogs. And several of them are sort of the scripts for a few of the films you've made, which are in the Dog Film Festival. And I was just curious... Did you write the script and then somehow get the dog to do that? Or did the, you and the dog do that filming and then you wrote the script to go with it? Uh, I wrote the script. I wrote the um, stories first. Yeah. In every case, I wrote the stories first. and did then. But I always write the stories. The way that I film dogs is that I write to what exactly I know the dogs are going to do. That's what I write about is dog behavior, real dog behavior. So the most complex one that I'm doing, the one that I'm re-editing right now about my dog Puppy Boy, which is about how he, when a friend of mine came over to the house and was uh, was very sad and reporting how his wife was cheating on him and they were getting a divorce, um, Puppy Boy, as he does under every circumstance, was bullying him into a game of ball. And the guy was just paying no attention to him, and Puppy Boy was not noticing at all, just continued to keep putting. Puppy Boy was actually really intense about this. He would, What he used to do there, I've never seen any other dog do, is when he'd bring a ball, he'd put it on you. And then if you didn't notice it, he'd pick it up, but he'd move it a little closer to you. And if you didn't notice, then he'd start pushing it into your chest. He'd start pushing it onto your hands. He was completely relentless, so he was doing this while this guy was talking about his divorce and paying no attention to him. It's- so I, I actually, when I filmed a version of it, first I wrote a story about it, about how I was imagining what Poppy Boy was thinking when he was doing all this and being ignored. And when I filmed it, it was very easy to film because I, I knew that 
that was exactly what he would do. So and I he, just and wanted he did to it, do what he, he always did. And he did it to a fairly well, and it wasn't a ball exactly. It was a deflated rubber thing, which you refer to as his deflated. But you, you talk, the, the whole film is spoken as if it's his thoughts and what he's trying to get the guy to do. It's, it's, it's really hilarious because a lot of us have had relentless dogs that just won't give up. And, well, that's part of why I love them. I mean, yes. to me, dogs are like like humans from another planet. They've assimilated to a great degree, but not to the finest degree. So that you get like really blunt, really rude humans is what they are. Right, you know, they are. They're, they're, they're sitting very on your furniture. And they're very narcissistic. It's me, 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 I, I. This is what I want right now. Give it to me. But I think that is also what we love about them is that they are very uh, – they have a pure through line of what, of what is on their mind. I know that some of these films – or I think that you said that some of these films you had made in anticipation of perhaps them being TV shows or series or HBO. Do you think that it was so long ago before we were all now as dog-obsessed as you always were that now there would be a more fertile reaction I have no idea. You know, I was some of those dog videos I did on the Letterman Show were like before there were, you know, there was no internet. That's right. And I was the person who had access to cameras and editing equipment, and nobody did at that point. Everybody didn't have editing equipment and cameras, so I was making these things way before anyone could make them. Other filmmakers could make them, but if they were filmmakers, usually they had something more important on their minds than just videoing their dogs. Or giving, so, or giving Bob snacks under the table, which was a pretty funny one. I mean, the stupid pet tricks, were they all about dogs or were they also with other pets? No, I didn't actually. Um, that was just an idea I had. We, oh, when I he see. and I were putting that show together, uh, that you needed to find things that you could refill over and over and over again. And that came up as an idea that I had. And we ran an ad in the paper, and then it was oh. instantly um, – we had a choice of a lot of things, So, and you could keep refilling it. So that's how that came to pass. And funny that we used to do things like take ads in a newspaper. How funny is that? A physical yeah. newspaper was how – people reached each other that like if they wanted to send secret messages, they would put it in the personals column, right? You know, where to make the drop of the kidnap money or something. Well, I know they still do that. They still got those in newspapers. It's just that you would of course also have it online. Right. Much more likely you do it online or you would just do it for all the world to see in some even more intense way than, than a classified. So one of my, it was very hard to pick what I'd like you to read because I mean, they're just so divine, but there's one showering with your dog. And I actually said, when I wrote to you, let's start with step one, but actually the top of that page is even better because it talks a little bit about how you used to try and uh, get Stan, your 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 dog roommate, to, to, to have better hygiene. And I think it's... That was a long time ago, too. You know, since then, I've had a wide variety of dogs who have all different reactions to showers. Puppy boy, you could just point at the shower and he would go in. One of my dogs now, Rosie, I had somebody come the other day, a mobile pet groomer with a truck. And she was so hysterically upset by the whole thing that she pooped and threw up all over the woman. So, I mean, you get this giant reaction (laughs) and this wide variety of responses to this stuff. But maybe Rosie would happily, if if she went in the shower with you, as you describe in showering with your dog, it might have been a pleasant experience instead of a vomiting, pooing one. Possibly. Possibly. Well, when I first got Jazzy from Southampton Shelter and I brought her home for a shower, 
which she'd never been in a shower. And I and I and as you said, you can't really be nude in there. Somehow you feel there could be a camera watching. She vomited immediately. It was just all too scary. Since then, she reluctantly goes in and grips tightly to the little rubber pad I put down. But if what you kind would, of dog is she? She's a a collie mix. And, oh, that's a good dog. Yeah, it's a good dog. And by the way, forget that whole thing about hybrid vigor. Oh, she's a combo, so she'll be great. She blew out first one and then the other of her ACLs and has been pretty much a crippled arthritic mess ever since. God bless Yeah, I had a dog. Uh, one of my, I've had just a string of dogs, and I lost four about a year ago, and now I've got two new ones. But one of those four... I I got from a shelter and within four weeks I had to spend like it was like three grand to get yeah. that ACL thing fixed. It was well, you really you expensive. got the bargain rate here, and I'm surprised in California you only paid that here. It runs between five and eight thousand. Hello, everybody. Pet insurance. May I say that one more time? Actually, never mind the ACL with pet insurance because they were so there was so much insurance fraud around it. I have to just say that it went from a six month wait period to a one year wait period for with if wow. you have, yeah. So, so if it you, is. It's not a good thing to get. It's a great thing to get, but your dog, you should have them carefully on a leash for the first year. I mean, if I mean, really, because ACLs are those tears are so expensive and so painful and so common. And people were doing the vile thing of waiting till their dog was lame and then going, oh, OK, I'll get pet insurance and I'll wait a couple of days. Now I'll go to the vet. Then they right. would have the, the pet insurance pay for it after the two-week waiting period, and then they'd cancel the pet insurance. Oh, humans, we are naughty. So it ruined it for everyone else that wasn't trying to do insurance fraud. You know, in month seven, their dog's ACL tour. All right, yeah. so let's do page – I hope that my old bargain version on page 114 – of showering with your dog is still the same page you have to read from. I, I do have it because um, the new version doesn't have showering with your dog. Oh, my God. Does. Okay, then those of you who are hearing this, you really will absolutely adore the book, What the Dogs Have Taught Me, but you're only going to hear showering with your dog here, read by Meryl. Go for it. Uh, you want me to start it, unfortunately? Yes, there's a complication, please. Yes, please. Perfect. Unfortunately, there's a complication. Since I have conferred on Stan the status of roommate, it has become increasingly difficult to compel him to undergo traditional dog humiliations, like bathing. I used to tie the boy up in the yard and hose him down, the way you might say your parents, but that no longer seems fair. No basic pet care book deals with this type of readjustment. And since it is my goal here to fill the holes that others never even knew existed, I would like to help bring pet care into the 90s. So that tells you when I... I know, I know. Advising those for whom a pet is a significant other, or if not, certainly an insignificant one. My first topic, showering with your dog. Let's face it, even the most beloved dog can be very stinky at times. And where pet hygiene is concerned... The enlightened pet guardian, and of course by that I mean me, has no choice but to share the indoor facilities with the animal. Step one, choosing the proper wardrobe. When showering with your dog, it is advisable to wear swimwear. I don't know whether the dog would know if you were naked, but you would know. Step two, getting the dog into the shower. Nothing can really proceed until this is accomplished. Often the dog will exhibit a little initial reluctance perhaps because he's watched too many horror movies on TV in which showers are presented <laughs> in an un in unfortunate light. Many dogs have never given any thought to the concept of fiction, and so do not know that showers are not just another death trap. <laughs> Rather than confront the animal with a lot of mind-blowing philosophical concepts, I recommend one of the two less complicated strategies that work for me. The first is what I call the old ball-in-the-shower approach. 
in which you, the parent or guardian, relocate to the inside of the shower with some favorite sports equipment, making it appear that you have selected <laughs> the location, not because of its showering capabilities, but simply because it's the best damn place around <laughs> for miles to play ball. After 15 or 20 minutes of enthusiastic solo sports maneuvers, you have not managed to interest the animal in joining you. I suggest you switch to the immediately effective chicken skin around the drain <laughs> approach. It's a well-documented fact that only a minute amount of chicken skin can accumulate in the lower third of any area of the world before it will be joined by a dog. Once this has happened, simply close the shower door behind him and pull the curtain. For the more squeamish among you who worry about the mess in the shower, you can count on the dog to clean it all up. If he should happen to miss a little and some chicken skin remains, don't worry. It will simply be taken by any future showerers as a remarkable indication of how seriously you scrub yourself when you wash. <laughs> Step three, moistening and soaping the animal. This may be trickier than it appears because the animal tends to move to parts of the shower where there is no water. <laughs> and so it becomes your perpetual task to keep moving the water to the parts of the shower where there is a dog. During this phase, apply shampoo and try not to take personally the animal's expression which indicates a hatred and loathing so extreme that he's trying to figure out how he can reconnect with his long-buried primitive instincts to kill and eat a human being. <laughs> it may be useful to let the dog know that showering is not a punishment, but something you actually find pleasurable and relaxing. If this does not help, now is an excellent time to explain to the animal that the legal system is built primarily around the rights of humans. And if you want to, you can take him back to the pound where you got him, and then his life won't be worth a blood nickel. Step four, rinsing. You are now dealing with increasing desperation on the part of the dog, who may be getting ready to make a break for it. This is why nature <laughs> gave the dog a tail, to help you as you try to restrain him before he runs through the house all matted and soapy and gets big hair and crested stains all over your cherished possessions. Step five, toweling the dog. This process is designed to help you avoid the splattered, soaking mess that results when the dog shakes himself off. No matter how diligently you perform toweling, it is futile. When you're through, the dog will still disperse the same astonishing amounts of water and hair as if he'd never been toweled at all. Now you may release the animal, perhaps deluding yourself that he's thrilled at his cleaner condition. You should return immediately to the shower and shovel out the three <laughs> to five pounds of hair you will find lodged in your drain. This brings me to the final step, but the most important one. Step six, remove any bottles of flea and tick shampoo. Take it from someone who has lived through every unfortunate scenario that can result from simply leaving the bottle around. I hope I have helped you. It's so hilarious because I guess the, the great thing of anyone who's, who's a great humorist is to, to shine a light on, on the obvious that we don't really think about. How can it be that in a shower there are places where no water reaches and how can it be that dogs find them? Yeah. I mean, it's like, wait a minute, a shower. Yes, there's dry places in the shower, and the dog always seems to find them. It's yeah, you know, I gave up showering with my dog, actually. I guess I shouldn't confess this. I've been hiring the mobile pet groomer. I mean, we've got my current bunch are so unlikely to go into the shower that I just didn't want to fight. Well, I don't think that the pet groomer is going to be welcoming Rosie into her van anytime real soon. So no, she is not looking forward to more, um, more access vomit to and Rosie. Poo. Right, so I think Ro Rosie may have to to get used to being in there with you. Are you trying to, or have you given up to make any more dog themed movies just for the rest well, of us? Well, you know, I wait for the dog to tell me what the movie is. Like, I see. With Puppy Boy, it was obviously going to be about his, his crazy persistence with ball. I had a dog named Lewis 
who um, I wrote a lot oh, of pieces yes. about and filmed things about. Well, I used to say that he had a greeting disorder because when you came in, he just wouldn't stop saying hello to you for the longest <laughs> period of time, and, which I always found a little bit endearing and sometimes a little bit annoying, but friends really didn't find nearly as amusing as I did. Right, And then he had this disorder. other thing. And, hmm? and, and a movie about Lewis, The Lewis Conversations. Is that what it's called? No, The Lewis No, Chronicles. I have one called Greeting Disorder. I don't think I'd put it mm. online, but it's about how, what Lewis used to do is when a person would come in after he'd greeted them to the point where they were lying on the floor and floating in a pool of his saliva right. and not amused at all, then he would go into the living room and he would have sex with a couch for the rest of the time that the person was at the house. Oh, my God. Lewis was an intense guy. Well, isn't there an animated movie that's going to be in the Dog Film Festival with Lewis in it? Yeah, you uh, asked me to. Um, yeah, that was a pilot. That oh didn't get God. picked up either. I was I was so eager to have that. Oh and it has God, Jack Black so playing Lewis. Stop. That's, oh, no, seriously. It's it, Jack Black is playing Lewis, and my friend Laura Keitlinger, who's a hilarious comedian, is playing Winky, my other, one of my other dogs, and I'm doing my own voice. Does Jack Black get credit in it? I didn't notice that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. The Jack Black. See, I probably saw Jack Black and thought, oh, yeah, right. The Jack Black before Jack Black was... As, as oh, he was already famous. He's oh, he just was? a friend of mine. <laughs> Handy to have such good friends. Well, four of your movies are in the film festival. You are the most represented filmmaker in the whole Dog Film Festival. Two wow. of your movies are in one session. Well, I've been at it such a long time. I know, but and also so uniquely. I mean, who else speaks for what the dog is thinking? I mean, that's the beauty of them, is that your script is the thought of what the dogs are. And, and then some dialogue with you as well, but then either you or somebody else does the dog's voices. And I don't know anybody else who's as good at getting into a dog's head and a dog's mind as you are to show us the beauty and the folly and the hilarity of what we imagine they're thinking. And if we don't imagine it, we should, because you definitely. Well, that's half of why I, I love them. I mean, I love them because I love all animals and I love the affection and everything, but they make me laugh every single day. And I just appreciate that. Well, I think one of the beauties of your books, and there are several also that have other dog writing. There they are. Nice. I love them. See? They know when to agree. Is that we have to remember to laugh more and not take things seriously. And if things go wrong and our friend is covered in slobber or some weird thing is dragged into the living room, instead of going, oh, no, what'd you do? It is rather hilarious because maybe they are connecting, as you say, to that earlier instinctive kill-eat human being thing that, that you know, they should reconnect to their primal self isn't that's healthy right well they are at least half animal at least half exactly or as we say around my house well it's not his fault he's only human i mean i'm yeah. sure you say that about your dogs all the time right that he's only human no i actually never say that i you like don't? to i like very much that they're not my species i like to think about what i love the idea of living with a whole other species i mean yes. i would be living with one of every other species if i could be if i if an echidna or an uh, anteater would, would join me, I'd be You'd do that. So you'd be Noah, yeah. Noah Marco. Well, I cannot wait to uh, to have people have the joy of seeing your movies in the Film Festival, Marilyn. Thank you for reworking some of them so they're even snazzier and snappier than before. But if, if, your, new, if your new pair come up with any film ideas before October 3rd, we're going to squeak in another Marilyn Marco film for sure. Well, great. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for all the great writing. And... Uh, there'll be a link to Amazon if you guys want to find What the Dogs Have Taught Me, the new, improved version, but with, uh, sadly, new thing, showering with your dog. Thank you, Meryl. Have a great rest of the day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches. Hope to see you at the Dog Film Festival. 
Go to the website and check out all the cool stuff that's going on. We've got some trailers running now that are a hoot. Hope to see you all there. Bye for now.